following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It Podcast with Brittany Page and Jesse Dallimore. Welcome, everybody, to the one and only I Doubt It Podcast, episode 802, hosted by your one and only Jesse Dollimore and the, well, not one and only, because there's multiple of them, lovely, talented, scholarly Brittany Page, everybody. You know, I recently saw a tweet that said something about, you know, you're old or something when you uh, realize you have like a favorite stovetop burner that you use or like that is adulthood is finding that you have a favorite stovetop burner. Hmm. And I realized that for me, uh, I know I'm old because I'm excited that I finally got into Rancho Gordo bean club. (laughs) It's like objectively not cool or exciting, but I'm very excited about it. I can talk about both of those things. Okay. Because I, I've never had a favorite burner. Uh huh. Yeah. I think you do. Well, no, only it, it depends on where the stove is positioned <laughs> and then where, because the place that we had, that we lived in Costa Mesa, uh-huh. it was the left front <laughs> and then the place in Irvine uh-huh. was the right front. And then here in DC, it's also the right front. It depends on where my prep station is. Mm, okay. So it needs to be closest to where you're doing the chopping yeah, and preparing. Yeah, where, where the work's getting done. So then you can move it easily to the pan. Yeah, so it's not, for me, and I would imagine it's this way for everybody, who's going to go out of their fucking way? Yeah, well, I don't think it's saying that you choose a favorite burner and then that's your favorite burner everywhere you go at all time periods yeah, in it, your it, life. What I'm saying is... It has nothing to do with getting old. It has to do with efficiency. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's, you know, you get old and you start like having weird things that are a priority for you and or that are exciting for you. <laughs> exciting is different than than favorite or whatever. Okay, well. But I, I will say this. I will say this. I am with you excited about the Rancho Gordo being we're, we're in the bean club right bean club yeah there was a wait list on the wait list for like a year by the way i've told a few people oh, i finally got into the bean club and they're like what the fuck is bean club <laughs> and like why is it something that you're talking about like you're really excited about it is there some thing <laughs> well, what is involved in getting into bean club is what people all, ask me yeah what high bar did you have to meet but first it's of just all a wait list this episode's not not in any way sponsored by Rancho Gordo. In fact, they might be like bummed that we're even talking about them. Yeah, it's absolutely not. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, quarterly. You get this box of beans sent to you. I think it's like six pounds of beans or something in one grain. Like dry, artisanal, artisanally, whatever grown Heir- heirloom beans. Heirloom. That's what they are. They're yeah. heirloom and they're pretty good. Like you did the the, the chickpeas, the, the garbanzo beans. Yeah. And I've never really liked garbanzo beans mm-hmm. because it's just like eating mushy cardboard. It's and not. Fuck no, it's not. It, yeah. it, they're awesome. Yeah, they're really good. So I've been eating beans every day for like the past week. 
How's that? How's that uh, working out for you? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because I'm assuming you're getting at like the gas question that always comes along with the beans. Yeah, yeah, the and, the, the magical free fruit yeah. that you know apparently the more you eat, yeah, the 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 more you toot, yeah, as they yeah, say. Yeah. As they say, as the kids say, <laughs> as children say. So how is your butthole, I guess, is what I'm getting Well, at. we're not, that's not, we're not. We're not? That's not the what? conversation that's going to be had. But I will say, <laughs> apparently there's conflicting scientific evidence about whether or not soaking your beans and draining the water after you soak or using the soaking water to cook the beans, it's inconclusive whether or not using new water eliminates or reduces the uh, problematic gas that can come along with eating Listen, a significant number of beans. I think it's wildly presumptuous mm-hmm. for you to call it problematic gas. <laughs> I'm I, sure there's a, a a percentage of people out there who enjoy the 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 after what is left with from bean eating. Okay. Even if it's just to torture their wife. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not speaking for myself. Uh-huh. I'm not speaking for myself. Yes. Yes. Well, <laughs> this is something that I'm excited about. I would be curious to hear other things that people realize they were excited about. You know, we moved to D.C. and we had to get rid of our washer and dryer. And I miss my old washer and dryer. Yeah. That's another thing that I realized. Like, this is not normal. This is like adulthood where you start missing a washer and dryer that you had because it had a waterproof setting which was really nice when you wash a mattress cover for example that has like the waterproof backing on it Mm -hmm. because if you don't have a waterproof setting on your washer it is a pain in the ass to wash and dry like a mattress cover so let me let me analyze where we the path we just took is there any link between talking about the waterproof mattress cover (laughs) <laughs> and the bean eating and the farting and shitting. No, what, what, no, because... So is your bean eating leading you to need to wash the mattress cover extra? No, that would be that would be Sweepy pissing in the bed twice. That's what that would be. Those those are unsubstantiated rumors. <laughs> okay. No, that's, that's pretty much what it is, <laughs> is Sweepy. Let's blame her. So you're throwing the dog under the bus in yeah. order that no one thinks you're shitting the bed from the beans. That is correct. <laughs> well, we got a big show today. As always, we will start with some listener communication. Uh, a lot's been going on these past few shows, and uh, both in, in way of uh, a guest that we had on, Aaron Rabinowitz from the uh, Embrace the Void and Philosophers in Space podcasts, respectively. And we got a voicemail about that, and then some of the stuff about uh, all of the different things we've been covering. So let's uh, let's start with feedback on that episode with Aaron. Hey, I am just wrapping up listening to your podcast about luck and I love the conversation about the role luck plays in life. Um, and one of the things that I've talked to my husband about who doesn't attribute anything to luck, and he's the luckiest mofo I've ever known. Uh, but one of the ways I've got him on board with acknowledging the role luck plays in his life is I've pointed out that he has really capitalized on his luck. And I think that he accepts... Like he's really uh, come to accept that as 
this bridge between the fact that he does work really hard and he's really smart and he's made a lot of efforts to better his situation and to better himself. Um, but it's helped him acknowledge how lucky he's been and that he's just, everything works out for him and that he's really lucky, but he has definitely taken hold of the luck he's been given and created that into like just a really successful life. But I love the conversation about luck and it has really helped me acknowledge that like it's helped my happiness. Um, yeah. It's helped how happy and satisfied I feel with life because I do. it has made me shift my perspective, I guess, from like things that could be wrong or are less happy to just acknowledging that I also have had a really, really lucky life. So anyway, I'm glad you guys talk about that and have talked about it frequently over the years because I really have taken it to heart and I appreciate it. And also, this is Lindsay from Boise and I appreciate what you do. Thank you. Well, that's awesome, Lindsay. And it sounds like Lindsay's husband started out not believing or attributing anything to luck and now is basically where you are, Jesse. Is that is that fair? Or I mean I mean she didn't give us the percentage breakdown. Yeah, yeah. But it, it seems like philosophy. maybe he maybe he he thinks hard work is more of a percentage than I do. But you know, it, it strikes in me maybe a question of Maybe the luckier you've been in your life, the accumulation of your luck um, culminating in good things for you, maybe that is kind of a recipe for thinking that you've done done it all on your own and luck played no role because why am I so lucky? All these things happen because I work so hard and I'm, I made this happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. It, just, it seems like that might follow. One thing might follow the other more readily. Yeah, well, and I'm I'm still interested to hear from listeners how they took the conversation with Aaron. Do you believe that it is luck all the way down, which is Aaron's position, or do you have another view? Uh, I think that what Lindsay said about luck being something that makes her feel happy and motivated about life is is the way that I feel when I talk about luck. I know that it, it's not always the case for some people, that it can be kind of defeating for them to believe that a lot of things in their life are attributable to luck. But I like the way that Aaron counters that too. So if you didn't listen to that episode, that's 801, our our interview with Aaron Rabinowitz, definitely check it out. And we would love to hear more feedback from the audience on that episode. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Lindsay. We appreciate the call very much. All right, moving on. Hi, Jesse and Brittany. This is uh, John from New Hampshire. Um, Just calling in to, uh, air my grievances with the Republican Party in general and their uh, tendency to wrap themselves up in the Constitution and the flag while having a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Constitution says and you know, what this country stands for. Uh, you know, you know, with them wanting to form us into a Christian theocracy and informing their Posing their religious views on everybody else when in the First Amendment, so it's right there, plain as day, freedom of religion, their misunderstanding as to what the Second Amendment says with a well-regulated militia being necessary to the uh, security of the country, and that therefore members of this militia have the right to bear arms and not some dumbass 18-year-old who's going to buy an AR-15 and go shoot up a bunch of kids. That's not the First Amendment. That's not the Second Amendment. 
Second Amendment is someone is is for responsible gun owners to own weapons, not dumbass eighteen year olds who are going to murder children. Um, and then finally, their misunderstanding as to uh, what this country was founded upon, which is a, a a place for anyone from wherever in the world to come and live their life however they want. Um, you know, Statue of Liberty says, you know, right there with his poem that we are a country open to immigrants and they want to stop immigrants from entering the country. Um, and I'm just sick and tired of them cherry-picking what parts of this country they like and what parts of the Constitution they like. You don't get to pick which parts are your favorite. You have to love the country for what the whole thing is, not just the parts they like. And it's infuriating. Um, so, yeah, um, that's it. Uh, keep up the good work. And, uh, he's the best part, of course. Love the show. Brittany's the best part. Bye. Well, listen, John, I, uh, I think I speak for Brittany here as well that your your frustration with Republicans is well-founded and shared by millions and millions and millions of Americans. That's not to make an argument to, uh, to consensus, but the only thing that I would challenge, and I think it's just the turn of phrase that you're using and not maybe exactly what you feel, is that I don't think it's a, maybe with the, the general unwashed, low-information Republican voter, it's a misunderstanding of the Constitution, but I don't believe that to be the case for elected officials, most of them. I mean, your Marjorie Taylor Greens and maybe your Matt Gaetzes uh, are one thing, but you know the your Kevin McCarthy's and your more politically astute, your Mitch McConnell's, they do know, they do understand the Constitution, and they know that they are, well, first of all, we're witnessing them uh, chip away in an aggressive manner. It's not just mild erosion. It is it, it, it is an, an overt te- attempt to destroy our democracy. They don't care about one person, one vote. They don't care about the, the outcome of elections because if they did, they would have been in a full-throated effort to rebuff Donald Trump when he attempted to steal an election when he attempted to overthrow the United States government by overturning a free and fair settled American election. They don't fucking care. So I'm with you. I'm just as frustrated because people I once had some modicum of admiration for have proved themselves to be craven cowards. Yeah. So thank you for the call, John. We appreciate it very much. Um, moving on into gun control territory and some of the topics we've been um, covering the last several episodes. Yeah, well, I want to definitely say that we got a few corrections for me because I made a comment about there not being any um, female mass shooters. And I don't remember anymore what specifically I said because, you know, after we finished recording, I... Don't remember anything that happened, <laughs> but I know it was kind of an uh, offhand remark, and I just said this thing, and we got some feedback that uh, people actually know about certain instances of female shooters, and one in particular was in Illinois uh, in 1988 at an elementary school, so that was one that we got from mm-hmm. a listener, 
And then we also uh, got an email from Kelly in New England who corrected me as well. Dear Jesse and Brittany, I'm sitting here with the fresh news of the shooting in Tulsa. I got an alert on my phone as I was listening to episode 800 and it's all too much. I don't know if I have anything profound to say about it. It's just exhausting. I doubt it will change. Remember Congressman Steve Scalise literally got shot in a mass shooting and still has an A-plus rating from the NRA and still swears obeisance to them. Mitt Romney, the quote-unquote good, heavy scare quotes, Republican, has taken more money from the NRA than anyone else, something like $13 million. Random other thing off the top of my head, I can only think of one female school shooter, Brenda Spencer. She shot up an elementary school in 1979 and said she did it because she didn't like Mondays. And I'm old enough to remember Kip Kinkle as the first time a school shooting made national headlines. The whole thing seems to be accelerating at nightmarish pace. So yeah, love the show and congratulations on 800 episodes. Kelly from New England. Kelly, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I didn't, when you were talking about uh, why there are no female sh- shooters, I-, I didn't take it as like literal zero. It just in the scope of things when there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of mass shootings in the history of our country. Almost 300 just this year, and we're only in fucking June. Invariably, it's a white it's a white man mm-hmm. almost every time. So I love to be corrected though. No, no, I, I'm not like throwing up some defense for you. It's just, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't thinking you meant literally zero. Yeah. I think, I think I, I, again, I don't remember what was in my, my head, but I think that probably was the point that I was making. Yeah. I'm probably trying to save myself right now though. <laughs> Let's just be honest about how things work, all right? You know, it does it does make you wonder though, what is the mechanism? What the fuck is going on that, you know, they talk about Republicans talk about like black culture and oh, Chicago and when 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 we have these kinds of incidents uh in schools and elsewhere, it's always some disgruntled fucking white kid, some mm-hmm. some little snowflake who can't handle whatever. I I don't know, it just it is an absolute embarrassment that they refuse to put up a mirror to themselves uh, and, and are trying to create a diversion with their other excuses rather than just let's deal with the issue head on. Deal with reality on reality's terms. Well, and I don't know if you heard that uh, Trump endorsed Senate candidate Blake Masters blamed the gun violence problem in America on, quote unquote, black people, frankly. So. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Racists love to racist. And racists love to endorse other racists. That is very correct. That is a fact. Yeah. So, Kelly, thank you for the email. We appreciate your communication and your listenership, as always. It's just one more thing on that. It's it's always that when these things happen, and it is a white shooter, that Republicans, conservatives, they rush to have some sort of external explanation about bullying or uh, mental illness the makeup of the family and even trump was using this makeup of the family as though a single parent household is some predictor of mass shootings when donald trump has been divorced how many times he has kids from different women like i mean if you're gonna start talking about the effects of having multiple marriages and a quote-unquote broken home i don't know that donald trump is the one to be delivering that message well, I mean, listen, when like 60% or more of, of American marriages ended divorce, it's not a, 
that's not a viable predictor. That that's they're just that's a again a shiny object trying to distract from the actual fucking issue. Yeah. So again, Kelly, thank you. We love you very much. Uh, moving on, Tony in Boston. Hi, Brittany and Jesse. It's Tony, the recovering evangelical from Boston. So I need to talk about the relationship between rampant gun violence and Christofascism. What I want to point out is that Christofascism isn't just complicit in the U.S.'s mass shooting crisis. It's wholly responsible for creating the cultural ethos that fetishizes guns and violence. But why must it be this way? Why do they idolize the Second Amendment and fetishize military-style firearms? Well, my explanation is that it's because the Second Amendment has always been about maintaining white supremacy. And Christofascists look to violence as a means to control society as well as to purge the U.S. from all things it deems impure. As such, it's absolutely necessary for them to maintain and facilitate civilian access to the deadliest weapons they can manage. They also exert power by ginning up fear and inspiring stochastic terrorism. This is why the altar of the Second Amendment is soaked in the blood of children and people of other vulnerable demographics. But that shouldn't be surprising. I mean, when people's deeply held religious beliefs are predicated on human sacrifice, then why should we expect anything less primitive and brutal from their politics? Even when it's literally children being offered up for the slaughter. After all, we're all children when compared to a god. Until we pass major gun reforms, these shootings are going to continue. So we need to use every means necessary to keep the pressure on these assholes. One thing I'd like to propose is that we start a campaign for naming these mass shootings. I'm talking the big ones. After the motherfuckers in Congress who are obstructing gun reform. Preferably after a member of Congress from the respective states. For example, the recent Texas shooting would be the Ted Cruz Uvalde school massacre. And I think that shows like yours, with its connections between like cousin, Farron Cousins and David Pakman, etc., we could really create a coordinated campaign that's impactful. Even if other, quote, mainstream outlets took notice and mentioned it as what some are calling the Ted Cruz Uvalde school massacre, it could make some big waves. My point is that we need to name and shame these child-sacrificing motherfuckers, these merchants of death. There's another way we can speak out, too. On June 11th, there are going to be demonstrations around the country with the March for Our Lives campaign. So please go to MarchForOurLives.com or text the word MARCH to 954-954 to get involved. So that's it. Thank you for everything you do. Bye. Well, we love a call to action, and that's definitely important. And the, there's going to be a march in D.C., uh, various cities across the country, so definitely check that out. Yeah, and I think there there, there could be some some level of efficacy surrounding doing the thing where he's talking about naming this, the, the, the shooting mm-hmm. after whichever politician is the most prominent in the locality that the shooting took place. Uh, the problem is... Um, there's so many of these. How many Ted Cruz Uvalde shootings or, you know, the Sutherland Springs? I mean, there would be so many shootings that would be attributed to whichever shitty politician. Because just um, over the weekend, there were 13 mass shootings. Right. So, but not a bad idea. 
something I, I, I think I might actually raise with those two gentlemen that uh, Tony mentioned. Uh, <laughs> the two gentlemen. The, Farron the, Cousins and David Pakman. Yeah, Farron and, and uh, Pakman. Uh, but thank you, Tony. Listen, uh, this is one of the reasons why we love our audience so much is that you got we we can feed your 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 passion and your frustration and your interest in these issues is palpable. It's it's we feel it, and I think that the the listeners also feel that, and it will motivate others to get on board. Like 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 Tony said, if you text March the word March to nine five four nine five four. It'll give you information about where the local march is in your area for you to take part and communicate to your leaders, both both local municipal level and all the way up the chain to your federal level, that you are fucking tired of the way things are. Yeah. So While we're on this topic of a call to action, since we talked about, since we played the voice memo from the listener in New York who offered up her apartment to give someone a place to stay if they needed to travel to get an abortion, as we're facing the end of Roe come, who knows when the decision is going to come down, mm-hmm. we're in June now, um, we've gotten other emails from listeners saying, add me to the list, this is where I live, this is what I would be able oh, to provide. Yeah, yeah. So we're kind of creating a a list of people that we're going to keep private and they let us know where they live, kind of the general area and what they would be able to provide in terms of housing for someone that may need to stay with them to get an abortion. Or whatever level of support. Yeah, and we're creating a list. So if you want to be on that list, that would be something that a listener, for example, if they're listening to this and they they themselves need to travel to get an abortion or they tell a friend, hey, I know this network of people. Let me reach out to them and see if they have someone in your area who who can help you. We're creating a list that we would be able to then give your information to someone who's reaching out in need of help. So if you are interested in being added to that list, please send us an email to idoubtit at dollamore.com. Let us know where you live, what you're kind of offering in terms of like a spare bedroom or whatever, and we will add you to the list. Yeah, absolutely. And again, in the spirit of of the community that is built up around the show, um, it is more important now than ever that if you are willing and that you are able, that we would uh, we would be glad to foster that connection between people. Yeah. Anyway, thank you all for your communication. We'd love to hear from you, 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone or a regular old-fashioned email to idoubtit at dollamore.com. I Doubt It is a listener-supported podcast. Support comes from our most loyal, engaged, intelligent, and good-looking listeners just like you via Patreon. Your support on Patreon for as little as $2 a month would help keep the conversation moving forward one podcast at a time. If you have a few dollars to spare each month, we invite you to help produce the show by joining the Patreon family. Please visit patreon.com slash I doubt it podcast. We would like to thank our new Patreon supporters, Mandy M. Mandy M. Chandler M. Chandler M. Crazy G. Crazy G. Christian. Christian. Scottly, Scottly, Rova T, Rova T, Curious Q, Curious Q, 
Q. Stuart O. Stuart O. And Wendy B. Wendy B. And then we would like to give a special shout out to Just Call Me Zachary for becoming an annual member on Patreon. Just Call Me Zachary. And then we have two Patreon supporters who increased their pledge. So special shout out to Lindy. Lindy. And special shout out to John S. John S. Again, we could not do this without your support, and we very much appreciate it. We sent out a giant pack of welcome stickers and magnets to the latest round of Patreon supporters, and they went out last week. So if if you are expecting that, check your mail, make sure you're looking for it. For the names that I just read, your stickers and your magnets will go out next week. So be looking for that. We are still sending out magnets. I know it was the end of the year gift last year, but we- <laughs> We got too many. We ordered a lot. And so while we have them, we figure we'll just kind of keep given them out. And we are already in June, which means we're starting to gear up and starting to think about what our end of the year Patreon gift will be this year. If you don't know what I'm talking about, every year on Patreon, we like to do a little something that gives back. This this last time it was a magnet that had a one-star review that we got on iTunes, which we thought was so funny. <laughs> and so we wanted to memorialize it in, in a magnet and send it to everyone. <laughs> and so... Uh, that's typically what the the end of the year gift is. It's something show related. We try, I think going forward, we're going to try to make it funny, um, see what we can do. But we're, we're looking forward to whatever the end of the year gift this year is going to be. We, we, and we don't know yet. Yeah, we're we, still we trying to figure know. it out. So um, other ways you can support the show is to buy some merch. Go to uh, dollamore.info and that should redirect you to our merch store we are going to be attending here in Washington DC the poor people's campaign and low wage workers march on Washington and uh, we made some t-shirts in support of that uh, fight poverty not the poor and poverty is a public policy choice both those things we've said for a long time on the show and um, you could support our efforts by buying that merch, and we'll also put a link in the show notes to that. Anyway, we love you guys. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Moving on. Dilemocracy. Facing down pessimistic politics with realistic optimism. So one thing I will say is we're kind of hearing this this theme, I think, in the listener communication of not believing that anything's going to change. And normally I'm not the one who is super optimistic and trying to convince people that things are going to get better. <laughs> That's more Jesse D's routine. Yeah. But here My I, routine. Here I am to kind of step into the fray and say, here's one thing I've noticed that's different about the media's coverage of mass shootings. They are now reporting how many mass shootings there have been like over the weekend. Yes. Ever since the the shooting at Robb Elementary, I am seeing a consistent reporting pattern among the most mainstream media outlets of paying careful attention to ensure that they are reporting on the number of mass shootings that have occurred over a period of days. And so the most recent batch, I guess we could say, yeah. is over the past weekend, there were 13 mass shootings across the country. Yeah, it is. I mean, in the case of CNN, which I watch mostly, I watch. Um, they're they've finally stopped 
wall-to-wall, bell-to-bell, 24-7 talking about Ukraine, which is important, and it does need to be reported on. But we are in a situation in this country where our very democracy is facing an existential crisis, the likes of which we have never faced, maybe since the Civil War, absolutely since the Civil War, actually. And they wouldn't get off the Ukraine thing. It was just Ukraine 24-7. So the fact that they are taking a break from that or also reporting on other things, I think is promising. Yeah. Yeah. And there may be some people that say, well, I don't, I don't watch those channels. I'm not really involved in that. Millions of people do. And yeah, yeah. and these media outlets have the ability to influence people and what their priorities are going to be in terms of their thinking. And I'm sure that there's many people out there that are watching this coverage thinking this is not cool. 13 mass shootings over the weekend. Something needs to change. But first, we're going to begin this week with news of more gun violence in this country hitting close to home for more and more Americans. Since Friday, listen to the numbers. There have been 13, 13 mass shootings in the U.S., including one in a busy part of Philadelphia and another outside a nightclub in Chattanooga where 14 people were shot there. Two of them have died. And another sign that this is certainly on people's minds, players for both teams in the NBA, they wore orange shirts last night with a message, end gun violence. National correspondent Jerika Duncan is in Philadelphia, a city she knows very well. Jerika, good morning to you. What happened there? Well, good morning to you, Gail. You know, three people died here. Twelve were injured in a mass shooting here in Philadelphia. And it happened on Saturday along a very busy South Street, familiar to a lot of residents here, a lot of businesses here. But hundreds were gathered at that time. Police believe there were multiple shooters involved. And they also say it appears it all started with an altercation that clearly escalated. Surveillance video shows the moment the shooting unfolded. People running for their lives as gunfire sprayed into the crowd. I woke up thinking, I got to see what real, what happened there. Marine Long says she heard the gunshots from her apartment. After Buffalo, Uvalde, you know, here, right here, we have to do something. It's a sentiment echoed by the city's district attorney, Larry Krasner. We have 120 guns for every 100 human beings. That's ridiculous. This is supposed to be a country of human beings, not a country of guns. 211 homicides so far this year, 743 non-fatal shooting victims. What is the city to do? The city is to change. I mean, that's the bottom line. The latest CDC data reveals a nearly 35 percent increase in firearm deaths nationwide from 2019 to 2020, with guns accounting for 79 percent of all homicides in the U.S. The country also recorded its most annual gun deaths ever, more than 45,000. Now, into 2022, we're seeing increases in um many forms of violence. Uh, And of course, we've seen some increases in mass shootings as well. Daniel Webster leads the Center for Gun Violence Solutions at John Hopkins University. He said gun violence has continued to rise in the last two years and pointed to reforms with wide public support like tighter licensing laws and comprehensive background checks as evidence-based solutions. The problem is the disconnect between what the public say they want and support and what policymakers actually act upon. 
And experts say that the gun violence is likely to tick up this summer as it typically does. As for the district attorney, Larry Krasner, he tells me that 28 percent of fatal shootings are solved, making the point, he says, that people who commit these crimes know they are likely to get away with murder. So one thing that jumps out at me is just the end of that clip where uh, she said that 28% of fatal shootings are solved. 28%. Right. That's, I mean, criminally low. I mean, what are what are we doing? And these are police departments that are so well-funded. Yeah. The, the whole defund the police slogan that you hear so much about, that's not reality. That's not actually been put into place. It's not an active policy. That's like a hope and dream that people have. So these are, these are departments that are heavily funded and 28% of fatal shootings are solved. Not even a third. I not mean, even close to a third. And another scary thing, they said in that clip that gun violence is t- typically ticks up during the summertime. So we aren't even in summer yet. That's that's coming yeah. soon. And so this is really going to tick up. We're going to see gun violence tick up when we are already seeing the most annual gun deaths ever. And we're having an increase in mass shootings this year over it, other years. It'll be interesting to follow that percentage to see if they do any better. Because listen, he, he, here's... Here's what I've kind of thought about the the uptick in crime and gun violence in this country since like the two summers ago when the uprising happened after George Floyd's murder. Mm-hmm. And when cops are like, oh, you're going to talk about defunding the police. Well, we'll just sit on our fucking hands. We're not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. In New York and here in D.C., I think that is the case. And we, we witnessed it absolutely happen after Freddie Gray's murder in in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. They just openly said, all right, well, we just won't, we won't do anything. Mm-hmm. You want to see how much you really need us? Well, we'll we're going to show you how much you need us. Mm-hmm. You would think it would be the opposite, though, that they would want to be crushing at their job to justify these insane police budgets for these large cities. And that's just not the case. They're so secure in their jobs and the poor job they're doing at their jobs that they, there's no, there's no motivation to do any better. Yeah. Well, I, I know the headlines have been talking about that. It's the 20 year anniversary of the wire. Yeah. I know that I'm somehow like working the wire into this conversation, but (laughs) it's very relevant given the topic of police corruption. Listen, everybody expected it. No one is surprised right now that you're talking about your favorite show of all time. So there is another HBO series that people are calling not like a follow-up to The Wire, but because David Simon, who helped create The Wire, is involved in this show as well, and it is about corruption in Baltimore. It's, it's you know, along the same lines. Yeah, except so, it's about true story. It's a true story. Yeah, of the gun trace task force and the corruption within this specific unit. It's called We Own This City, and I, I definitely recommend it. If you watched The Wire, if you were a fan of The Wire, you're going to see a lot of familiar faces. And you're going to love the shit out of this show. And it's... It is great. It is a great commentary. It is an important story. It's a true story. So if if you're interested in that kind of thing, we own this city on HBO. I think it's a short-term series, and it just wrapped up. The last episode was on a few weeks ago. So Yeah. Um, You know, along the same lines about cops, you would think they would go the extra mile that, you know, they, they want to act like they're heroes and that we run in when everyone else is running away and we're, we're these, these bold, her- heroic figures in American society. And then 
you know, it gets put on full display for America and the world that that's absolutely not the case, that they were actually, not only were they not confronting the shooter at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, they were hiding. Not only were they not running in, they were arresting and tasing parents who were trying to go in themselves to get the kids. And now we're starting to hear directly from one parent in particular, a mother named Angelie Gomez, and she tells her story about trying to save her kids. Right away as I parked, um, U.S. Marshals started coming toward my car saying that um, I wasn't allowed to be parked there. And uh, he said, well, we're going to have to arrest you because you're being very uncooperative. I said, well, you're going to have to arrest me because I'm going in there and I'm telling you right now, I don't see none of y'all in there. Y'all are standing with snipers and y'all are far away. I'm, if y'all don't go in there, I'm going in there. He right, immediately put me in cuffs. She says after Uvalde police officers told marshals to uncuff Gomez, she ran towards the school. As soon as they uncuffed me, I jumped that first gate fence. And once I jumped it, I went to my son's class and I knocked on the door and I remember the teacher saying, um, I'm like, hey, they're already, they're already um, bulge cutting the fence to get me. She's like, you think we have time to get out? I said, you'll have time. I'm going to run for my other son. Once she was assured her son was okay, Gomez ran to get her other child, encountering more officers who tried to stop her. So I start yelling and I'm being a cooperative and I'm like, well, y'all aren't doing shit. What are y'all doing? Y'all ain't doing shit. Y'all need to be in here. Give me your best. Somebody give me a best. Some, something. I started paying attention to how far the shots were being. So that I knew the shooter was all the way still by my first son's class. So when I went to my son, my second son's door, the teacher didn't want to open the door for me. So that's when they started um, escorting me out. And as I, as I see that they're opening my son's door, I go run for my son and I get him. With both of her kids out safe, Gomez still can't shake the thought of those who didn't make it. While you were inside the school, did you see officers there inside the school? There was not one officer inside the school when I ran to areas. my second son's class there was not one officer and you were hearing gunshots so you knew you that could hear the it gunshots. was an active shooter. it was still active the gunshots were still active they were not in there there was no one in there if anything when i pulled up my car was closer to the school than that where than where the snipers and everybody that was laying on the ground were when you heard that it took law enforcement 75 minutes before they went in and stopped the shooter what was your thinking having been inside the school yourself i don't know i was just thinking that they could have saved many more lives. They could have gone into that classroom and maybe two or three would have been gone, but they could have saved a whole, a whole more, the whole class. They could have done something, gone through the window, sniped them through the window. I mean, something, but nothing was being done. If anything, they were being more aggressive on us parents that were willing to go in there. And like I told one of the officers, I don't need you to protect me. Get away from me. I don't need your protection. If anything, I need you to go in there with me to go protect my kids. And if anything, they were being more aggressive on us. They were more pertained on keeping us back than getting into that school. So this is a, a tragic, a tragic story. And that almost wasn't told, by the way. Oh, I'm so glad that she's telling it, even though the police threatened her with a probation violation and said that if she spoke to the media about her experience, that she may be facing an obstruction of justice charge. Right, which is just patently fucking nonsense. But this is what uh, reporters and people are dealing with in in the city of Uvalde because City Hall, for example, is locking its doors during business hours and declining to give records or respond to uh, questions from reporters. Right. It's a straight-up obstruction. It, speaking of obstruction of justice. Right, and so the people that are actually speaking out about the injustice that occurred 
are being threatened by the authorities. Which is un- unbelievable. I mean, by the heroes. Yeah, I mean, it's not. Of course, it's not surprising. We're not talking about being surprised, but it's something that is so wrong for a community that is mourning, a community that is traumatized, to then have this added problem of the authorities preventing the truth from being released, preventing the truth from getting out there because they're afraid of the consequences. Yeah, and then we should be shifting to talk about. The, the other element of fear, and I don't know if it's abject fear of, of the gun lobby or fear of not having the campaign dollars flow so freely into your coffers, but there are real solutions here that the rest of the world has somehow been able to find that we are refusing to look at. And we're seeing right now on Capitol Hill talk of, just talk, that there is really maybe a compromise to be had. Yeah, and Manu Raju with CNN specifically talked to Joe Manchin. Well, right. The name that always comes up. And, of course, Joe Manchin is saying things that people right. may find comforting, but ultimately, is he going to take action and do what he actually says he's interested in doing? Here in Washington, Congress arrives at a do-or-do-nothing challenge. Senators are again negotiating over what, if anything, they can legislate about guns, how Americans buy them, or how law enforcement can take them out of the hands of dangerous individuals. Let's get straight up to Capitol Hill and our chief correspondent, Manu Raju. Manu, many of those involved say this is a critical week. Why and where are we? Yeah, this is the critical week because the Democrats are saying a deal must be close by the end of this week, or they'll simply say that there's simply going to be not enough Republican support in order to overcome a GOP-led filibuster, meaning at least 10 Republicans are needed to join with 50 Democrats on a deal that they've been discussing over the last several days. Among the key contours of the deal is how to deal with the state red flag laws, allowing states to take away guns from individuals deemed a risk, as well as a number of handful of other issues. And I just caught up with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who is a part of these bipartisan talks. And he told me any deal must include those provisions to bolster state red flag laws. And he also called to raise the minimum age to purchase semi-automatic rifles from 18 to 21, even as a number of Republicans object to that idea. We know we can do something that would have prevented this, raising the age, making sure that the age at least gives us a chance to work with that person, see and evaluate and, and have a little maturity to them. And the second thing is that, uh, uh, that we know that the red flag laws do work as long as there's due process. So you think raising the age from 18 to 21 for all gun purchases? Well, that's it's, it's where it is. Everything except for rifles and long run, long guns right now, or if it's just for these high high capacity weapons, mm-hmm. uh, whatever they want to do, I'm open to doing something that makes sense. Why do you think people even need an AR-15? Do people need I one? Know. I mean, you have to ask the people that do. I, I never thought I had a need for that type of a high high capacity automatic weapon. Uh, but and I like to shoot. I like to go out and hunt. I like to go out sports shooting. I do all that. Mm-hmm. But I've never felt I needed something of that uh, of that magnitude. Now, Manchin also told me that he is open to the idea of banning assault weapons, AR-15-style weapons. He said he wanted to see the proposal before actually supporting it. Now, that idea of an assault weapons ban will not be part of any final deal because of Republican resistance. So, John, the big question is what can they agree to? Can they agree to state red flag laws? Can they agree to increasing the mental health programs here in the United States? Can they expand background checks in some way? All big questions, but I'm told, John, 
raising the age from 18 to 21 is still an idea that is encountering stiff GOP resistance. So getting that into the final package will be difficult despite Manton's support. I mean, these are the same people that are against legalizing marijuana. <laughs> yeah. I and, mean, Laura Ingram the other day really was just, it was a, an hour filled with uh, reefer madness propaganda. Did Wait, she was talking about marijuana legislation? Yeah. Well, no, that she was blaming pot for the, the spate of gun violence. Really? It's one element. Yeah. Oh, wow. I did not see that. Yeah, because, is... you know, you know. Potheads are the most violent of all drug offenders. Yeah, I mean, I I really <laughs> I didn't know that that was a thing, but I I am making the point more so that these people, these Republicans, believe that marijuana is more damaging in the hands of an eighteen year old than like an eighteen year old getting their hands on an AR fifteen, right? And how messed up is their logic? Well, I mean, listen, if you think about that. Federally, you can't own a handgun until you're 21, Mm -hmm. a handgun, Mm -hmm. which if you look at the scale of carnage that can be delivered downrange between the two weapons, an AR-15 with a high-capacity mag, insane velocity per second, insane damage done to the victim, Mm -hmm. like just the flesh, the body of a victim. This is why no one hunts with an AR-15, because... If you're going to go out deer hunting, you would ruin the front. Like if you shoot a deer through the front or through the side into into the rib cage, you risk ruining a quarter of the meat. Mm-hmm. It's insane. You would never hunt with this. This is only a weapon of war. Yeah. And if you can buy a, a handgun only at 21, but you're allowed this insanely damaging, devastating weapon to be bought by 18-year-olds. It does not make sense. That makes no fucking sense. Right. So that, at the very least, is something that should be easy to come to. Yeah. But Republicans are being recalcitrant because the gun lobby, the gun manufacturers, pay them off. That is just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Ugh. Yeah. So we'd love to know. We want to continue this conversation with you. You can call, leave us a voicemail, 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. We have been talking for a long time about the threat to our democracy, the very real existential crisis that we face in America, that we have a crumbling um, democracy. We are losing the battle against conservatives and white nationalists and white separatists and straight up uh, these uh, neo-fascists is what they are. And Politico just did some reporting. They have recordings of a Zoom meeting or some kind of a training that happened in Michigan where they're laying out their case for... 2022 and 2024 and how to challenge democratic voters at the polls normally in an electoral situation you have people who are poll volunteers poll workers and then you have poll watchers now the poll watchers are partisan individuals who are there to make sure that everything's fair quote unquote but your poll workers are just dedicated civilians who have uh, a heart for civics and a, and a dedication to the continuation of unfettered democracy, typically. 
But what the Republican Party now is doing in a concerted effort and organized what I believe to be a criminal conspiracy to replace those poll workers with poll watchers And they are saying in their own words that it's going to be an army and that they're going to make friends with DAs and cops and judges to ensure that their challenges to democracy are a lot easier. We need volunteers on the ground on election day, ahead of election day, working so that that fraud does not happen again. If we only look at 2020, it just will happen. I work the polls the last election, and not only were we extremely poorly trained, I mean badly trained, but when we caught them cheating, and I caught them cheating, they they had a pre-planned thing that they did. They would swarm you, they blocked you from seeing things, they accused yep. you of doing things that you weren't doing, and then they would go like this and have the police come yep. and escort so you that, out. So that, that's why we're here now today, 13 months ahead of election day, as, as opposed to one month ahead of election day. So if I could ask everyone just to listen to Matt and let him go through his presentation, yep. that'd be lovely here. Uh, and then we can ask questions afterwards. That would be greatly appreciated. But seriously, that's why we're on the ground, like Rob said so early, is to address exactly that, right? The Democrats, and I'm just going to go off script and tell you that I'm going to address myself right away. So um, we are trying to recruit, truly, it's going to be an army, right? We are going to try to recruit lawyers. We're going to have more lawyers than have ever been recruited, because let's be honest, that's where it's going to be fought, right? We're going to have lawyers that work early to build relationships with different judges, so that when that happens, we're going to have lawyers that have relationships with the police chiefs in the different areas, with the police officers in the different areas. So that when that happens, those pre-existing relationships are already established so that they can't lie or so that they I, I've talked with so many people that work at the TCF Center, and that, that I've heard that happens. It, it happened, right? No one is discredited. Like, it, it happened, and it's wrong that it happened. It's 100% wrong that it happened, and we're going to address it. We're going to address it by having the lawyers on the ground. We're going to address it by trying to have those relationships and to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And the way we do that is also, to your point about not having um, – trainings, right? Like, good enough training. That was, again, because you had uh, an EDO director, nothing against the previous one. He was doing what his job was with the resources that he had, but he was, he was on the ground nine months or uh, 90 days before the election. You can't put together the trainings that, that close to the election. You need somebody on the ground. I'm working right now with a bunch of different lawyers to make sure that we have a, a, a very thorough a very thorough training put in place um, specific to the TCF Center. What we, what we want to do is we are going to have the walkthroughs beforehand. We're going to have agreements in place so we know what doors, ballots are coming in and out of. We're going to have people staffing those doors. We're going to make sure that we know exactly what has to happen for when ballots are challenged to make sure that they actually listen to the challenges so they make sure that they don't continue to keep putting the ballots in the machines. Like These are things that we are going to have agreements on, and if they violate them, we're taking them to court. We're going to have those relationships with the judges to make sure that it stops right then and there. Um, So this is a Republican National Committee staffer in Michigan making the plan clear. And I mean, you can hear these people that have worked polls before that are just talking about the election being fraud. Right. So imagine these people being installed in the nonpartisan poll worker position that believe that the election was stolen from Trump. Right. 
and that they have been trained by the Republican National Committee to interrupt the process. Challenge individual voters, and in Michigan's case, make them take some weird oath. And then if it's not, if they don't answer in the correct way, then their ballot is provisional and it gets challenged whether or not it's even counted. Right. And this is the goal to connect them with like party friendly district attorneys who can intervene, block vote counts at certain precincts. This is by his own account. It's going to be an army. We're going to recruit lawyers, friendly judges, police chiefs, police officers, district attorneys, all of these things. Everyone should be exceedingly alarmed by the plan that's being put forth by the Republican Party. Because these aren't just like some concerned citizens. This is a concerted Republican effort to not just gum up the works, but disqualify. And keep in mind, it's not going on in Texas. This is not going to be going on in Idaho or Oklahoma. These are going to be in Georgia, in Arizona, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Atlanta, Georgia, they're going to be where, one, there are a high population of black voters because that population will be an overwhelming Democratic uh, voter base. But also, it's swing states because their in- entire intent here is to interfere with democracy. Right, and before we get to the second half of the recording, I want to just pause here and do a little how the sausage is made. Um, You know, we talk about how we find our clips a lot. And typically when we're looking for clips, we will listen to several different news outlets talking about the same story in order to find the clip that we think best represents the story, most accurately represents the story. For this Politico reporting, I found very few mainstream outlets that were talking about Politico's reporting here. MSNBC had a video package on it on YouTube. PBS had a video package on it on YouTube. I did not see one from CNN. And I don't know if it has anything to do with CNN's new boss, who is going to be shaking up the personalities and programming in order to make the channel less partisan is the goal. Oh, really? And they are specifically outlining Jim Acosta and Brian Stelter as two individuals on CNN who are partisan liberals in the programming. Uh, Well, one, I'm not a giant. I I don't think Jim Acosta is bad, but he certainly... He lets his opinions be known a little bit too much for me for a journalist. But Brian Stelter, yeah, he's straight up and down the, the, the line. Well, and this is what's concerning is this new CNN boss seems to be falling into the mindset that got us Trump in the first place, which is this fake adherence to reporting, quote unquote, both sides right. rather than reporting the facts. Now, these polit- these tapes that Politico has unearthed, this is serious. This is scary. Yeah. Uh, this is an escalation in terms of whether or not Democrats are going to be able to win their elections fairly. It it is scary. And for CNN to have millions of viewers, the ability to inform the public and not spend hours talking about this. It's 24 seven. You have 24 seven time to talk about different topics. You can't squeeze in 15 minutes about the existential threat to the very existence of our democracy? Right. Come on. Here's part two. It doesn't get any better. It's going to be tough in Detroit. It's going to be very tough in Detroit, but as again, you know, it's, it's going to take a lot of effort in building those relationships early, but again, that's why we're on the ground as early as we are in. Yeah. Perfect. 
for TCF, we need to file a lawsuit to get full workers in. Yes, 100%. And, and we also yep. need a lawsuit to get into the clerk's office so that we have full for challengers verification. for ver signature mm -hmm. verification. Detroit does not want you to work. They don't want us Republicans at all. I'm a full worker. This will be my third election as a worker in TCF. I have a, I sign up on the, on the computer. This is how you do it. You sign up on the computer, you get an account. Then you, you call down there, but they ignore you. They don't return your phone calls. So what I actually had to do is I went down to Winfrey's office personally and walked in and I got my credentials. That's the only way I got my credentials to work the next election, which is this November. They don't want us there, and they ignore us. So we need to, we have the law we need to file lawsuits. Right, no, we have, we have the law on our side well, in that. And they believe they have it's required that legally is required to, to have an equal amount of Republicans to Democrats, right? They stack. And at the adjudication computer, and they're supposed to do it at the county board. Right. Yep. But they don't. Right. Well, that's an effort that we're going to. Right now, we're collecting anybody and everybody that is interested specifically to work the 22 elections. And the reason for that is because we want to submit those names. We want to submit those names early to fill those roles. And then they, they legally, they have to give us the list, right? They, they do. They have to send it out to the county clerks. and Or not the county clerks, the county parties. Um, and if we don't do that, we can FOIL it. FOIA it, right? Freedom of Information Act it to see who are you putting in those roles. And if they don't fill them with our people and we have enough time to do the investigations to make to, to find out, is this person really a Republican? And these are going to be the investigations that we do to make sure about that. Um, we will file the lawsuits there. We need to, we can do it for this November's election. Right. Election if this is we want to get our foot in the door now so yeah. that we're more so better prepared for twenty two. I'll 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 skip to that. So this is the timeline for this program. We are focusing for the November 2021 elections as a practice run for this program, right? That is something we are focused on. We're going to focus on the two uh, special elections for the state Senate seats. We're going to focus on the uh, municipality races in the city of Detroit. And one, because we want to start building those relationships and start working at the process within the, T like the TCF Center in Detroit. Uh, but then also to focus on some of the other areas of the state and see how, because you guys are, may already know this, Michigan is the most, like, it's the most decentralized election, uh, probably has the most decentralized election system in the entire nation. What do you mean? There are close to this, like 1,600 different township and city clerks. And because of that, you have 1,600 different individuals, essentially, that run elections the way that they want to want to run the elections within state law, right? But the law, there's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of room for interpretation. And so because of that, and, and the majority of the clerks around the state do a great job, right? But you have the, the ones like in the city of Detroit, the ones in Bay City, the ones in Pontiac, the ones Southfield. I mean, you have them all over, truly, you do. And those are the ones that we need to focus all of our efforts on. And we're going to do that. So in response to this reporting from Politico, a spokesperson for the RNC said that the party is simply attempting to rectify an imbalance in favor of Democrats right. working in these positions. What What is stupid about that statement is that you all just heard the audio. 
And these are people that believe that the election was fraudulent, that the Democrats are cheating, and that they need to be in there and really find a way to be able to challenge this fraud that's not happening. And all of those cities that he named, coincidentally, are majority black. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that the 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 Michigan Republican Senate released an exhaustive report that came to the conclusion that Biden won. There was no fraud. The Republican Senate, state Senate in Michigan. Mm -hmm. So all of this is a solution looking for a problem, and the solution is anti-democratic. Yeah. They're going to attack uh, black precincts, and they're going to challenge Democratic voters as a way to, at the very least, sow chaos, but in an effort to reverse what um, what gains Democrats might make. Right. Well, and it's it's sad because it reminds me of the, the email that we recently got from a listener who worked as a poll worker yeah. and talked about the experience and how positive it was and how everyone worked together and how you didn't really know anyone's political affiliation and everyone was just really invested in helping everyone vote successfully and this story is going to create concerns i believe for people that are poll workers regarding who they are surrounded by and what people are up to going back to what we were talking about earlier about cnn and these different networks who are who are just twisting themselves in pretzels trying to create uh an equal equal footing for the parties when you have one party that's a literal fascist party the republican party it's literally the 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 political party of conspiracy theory and then the democratic party who is the party obviously there's still problems within the democratic party machinery but it is the far more logical reasonable party that is dedicated to progress between the two there's really no comparison Mm -hmm. and this is really no more exemplified than the battle right now with CRT and also the anti-trans panic and bigotry toward the LGBTQ community. Yeah, well, this is another example of how we listened to several clips on this story. And there was only one that I found that I wanted to play because House Republican lawmakers in Ohio passed a bill at 11.15 p.m., Wednesday night, mm-hmm. in the middle of the night, so that's your first red flag here, uh, that would ban transgender girls and women from participating in high school and college athletics. Why is this so notable? Because it comes with a quote-unquote verification process. Mm. Now, what does that mean? That means that if someone decides to challenge someone who is playing sports and say they might be transgender. Yeah, let's say you, you, you've got a girl who's, who's participating in high school sports and one of the parents of a competitor says, I don't think they're really, quote unquote, a female. Then there can be a genital inspection yes. in junior high and high school. An external and internal genital verification. This is fucking madness. And so I know you're hearing that and thinking, oh my God, every news organization should be reporting that, right? 
Well, yes, yeah. but I could only find one clip on YouTube of a news organization that included the verification process as a part of their reporting. 5.30 now in the Ohio House passing a bill that could change the way high school and college athletes participate in sports. It would ban transgender girls and women from competing in high school and college sports. State House reporter Morgan Trout has an in-depth look at the bill that currently would only impact a single high schooler in Ohio. Being able to play on a girls' team is absolutely amazing. It's it's a total dream. Ember is a trans high school softball player, but many House Republicans say allowing people like her to join girls' teams hurts her competitors. There are a lot of folks in the LGBTQ community who are sitting there asking themselves, what did I do to them? Because they keep coming after me, but the answer is nothing just existing. Maria Bruno with Equality Ohio says fewer than 20 transgender girls have played high school girls sports in the past decade. But John Stover with Ohio Value Voters says if he had a daughter, he would want her to have a fair shot. Do I think it would be appropriate to have a transgender seven foot one male that was competing against her would certainly be inappropriate. A guy wakes up and decides tomorrow he's going to be on the girls team. That's not a thing that can happen. The Ohio High School Athletic Association already has rules in place regarding transgender athletes. If a trans girl wants to play on a girls team, she must have either one or more years of going through hormone treatment or she must demonstrate no physical or physiological advantages. The proposed rules would prohibit any trans girl from competing with cisgender girls. It also has a verification requirement if somebody is accused of being trans. The bill says if someone is suspected to be trans, she must go through evaluations of her external and internal genitalia, testosterone levels, and genetic makeup. If you get in front of a a potential issue, um, that's always better than waiting until there is a major problem that you need to deal with. Last summer, the House passed this through, but Governor DeWine said these decisions need to be made by athletic associations, not the government. We aren't trying to hurt anybody. We're just trying to feel safe and like ourselves. The governor's team says he's been busy, so he hasn't had the opportunity to evaluate the bill or possibly change his mind about his earlier statement. At the State House. Morgan Trout, News 5. All right, Morgan, thanks for that. So every state that has passed this legislation has actually been blocked by courts, but lawmakers brought up the economic impact this bill would have on Ohio. You're talking anywhere from $300 million to $400 million that will happen instantaneously. The NCAA has not said they'll think about it. They've already committed to doing it. So even if you believe in this piece of legislation, think about the economic impact that will happen. Solon Representative Phil Robinson speaking there on the House floor. He said that several athletic conferences have already said they will pull out their conferences and events here in Ohio. He adds that even if the other lawmakers believe in the bill, they should think about the economic impact. Whatever it takes. <laughs> Whatever you can get people well, to motivate them to be decent people, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, remember the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that was going to be passed in Indiana when Mike Pence was there. And the NCAA said, well, fuck you. We're going to take the final four and we're, we're, we're out of here. Yeah. And that shit didn't get passed. Yeah. So listen, if the NCAA is going to stand up and going to stand in the gap for trans athletes, then fucking good for them. Mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but this is just madness because this isn't just targeting trans athletes. Mm-hmm. This also is going to impact 
everyone else, any shitty parent, Mm -hmm. you're inflicting children and adults Mm -hmm. to unwanted genital inspection. Mm -hmm. This is fucking nonsense. Oh, yeah. I mean, the ways that this can be weaponized, if someone is performing too well, if someone is not well-liked and they can just get an accusation and then be required to undergo an external and internal. I mean, this is traumatic. Well, listen... You've all, everybody's heard horror stories about uh, parents who have children who are athletes, who are insane, who scream and yell at games and act like assholes. This is just going to be weaponized Mm -hmm. against all athletes in the state of Ohio. Well, and again, this is similar to, I think it was Utah, the other state that we talked about where similar legislation was proposed, and there was one student that would be impacted. And this is another situation where one student would be impacted. You even heard the 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 guy there referencing if he had a daughter, he wouldn't right. want this. Like he's talking about his hypothetical daughter that he doesn't have. And fewer than fewer than 20 trans athletes in the last 10 years have competed in Ohio. Yeah. Fewer than 20. Right. So they're acting like this is a significant concern when you're talking about one person. Yeah. Think about the tens of thousands of student athletes in Ohio over the course of the last decade. Tens of thousands for sure. And not even 20. There is no problem here. Listen, there's no problem here. If there was a thousand, it's not a problem. Right. But this is a anti-trans panic bigotry that is absolutely being mainstreamed yep fear of other yeah Ugh. yeah so we i mean we're going to continue to talk about this because it's important that people know that this is growing more popular this type of legislation across the country yeah. and that anti-trans bigotry is not going away I mean, we're seeing it on Netflix and comedy specials and we're seeing it in legislation and it it's something that if you care about human rights, this is not just a a cultural issue. This is human rights that we're talking about. I yeah. think a lot of times it's chalked up to being a culture war issue and it, it's not. We're talking about human rights here. So Yeah, I mean, listen, trans people aren't a fucking punchline for for Dave Chappelle or Ricky Gervais. This is absolutely without any equivocation Human rights, civil rights. If the Constitution means anything to these fucking whack jobs, they would they would uh, back down. But we're not seeing that happen. Isn't Dave Chappelle? He lives in Ohio, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, he sure does. Yeah. So anyway, we'd love to know what you think about this. 657-464-7609. And you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. Uh, as part of what we do on the show, we do like to follow up on topics that we've been covering, and that is exactly how we're going to finish the show today. Well, we've been talking about the supervised injection sites that opened in New York City. There's two of them, and how important they have been in saving lives and preventing overdose as the overdose crisis continues to get worse. And they are approaching their six-month anniversary, the two uh, supervised injection sites. And in that time, they have announced that they have averted 314 drug overdoses since they opened on November 30th. Wow. Very, very promising that they are saving this many lives. Hundreds of lives. Yes. Uh, New York City, uh, according to this press report from On Point New York City, continues to struggle with a record 2,000 fatal overdoses annually. 
and the supervised injection sites have been utilized 20,708 times by over 1,200 registered participants. Not only are they reversing overdoses of participants that are using these sites, they are also disposing of all drug paraphernalia that the participants use, so nothing leaves the center. That's like a big concern with people in these neighborhoods is having drug paraphernalia out in their neighborhoods, of it's course. Also a, it's also a talking point for your Tommy Larens and others that, uh, San Francisco's is covered in hyperdermic needles. Yeah, well, part of what they do is they have a dedicated team that actually goes out into the community, the surrounding public areas, and they pick up discarded drug paraphernalia. So they have safely disposed of 472,670 wow. syringes. All, all of those would have just been left in a public area. Yeah, so you would think people would be more in favor of this. Yeah, because this is what people try to say. You put this supervised injection site in my neighborhood and there's going to be there's going to be an increase of syringes all around. Well, that yeah. doesn't make sense because they can't leave with drug paraphernalia. It is disposed of at the center. Yeah. And they have a dedicated team that goes out into the community to alleviate that problem. So attention is turning now to increased funding and whether or not there are going to be uh, additional funds sent sent their way so that they can operate 24-7, for example. And also there are supervised injection sites that are being proposed in other states in the country. New York became the first city in the United States to allow overdose prevention centers where people can use illegal drugs under staff supervision. The two centers that opened have since intervened in more than 300 potentially fatal overdoses. But Caroline Lewis reports that so far, city and state officials have refused to provide funding. Some state legislators still aren't convinced that overdose prevention centers are ready to be replicated statewide. The failure of New York's Safer Consumption Services Act this session was a letdown for advocates like Jasmine Budnella with the harm reduction group Vocal New York. The legislature chose politics over over saving people's lives. The Safer Consumption Services Act would have done more than just allow overdose prevention centers to open in other parts of the state. It also would have unlocked new funding for the centers in New York City. We're doing great work and it needs to be expanded. That's Sam Rivera. He's executive director of On Point NYC, the nonprofit that runs the two overdose prevention centers in Manhattan. Rivera says the goal is to extend their hours to operate around the clock. But it, in order to get there, so it's really at this point all about being able to fund it. If they were open 24-7, the sites would cost around $2 million a year to operate. But On Point NYC isn't getting public dollars to fund the facilities, which are authorized in New York City, but still illegal under federal law. Instead, the organization is working to raise money from private donors. Other nonprofits hoping to open similar programs in the city are in the same boat. Thanks to recent legal settlements, New York City is being flooded with money to fight the opioid crisis. It has $89 million coming in this year alone. But City Health Commissioner Dr. Ashwin Vasan said the city will only put funding towards overdose prevention centers if they receive state or federal support. We're, we're out in front, and we've been pioneers in this space, but we need the rest of government to come and follow us. It's unclear why the city would act alone to authorize the centers, but not to fund them. It's a question that both both the mayor's office and the city health department declined to answer. But President Joe Biden's administration could take action on the issue soon. You know, they get that it works. 
This is an administration that believes in science and evidence. Rhonda Goldfein is the vice president of a Philadelphia organization called Safe House. The Trump administration sued the nonprofit for trying to open an overdose prevention center in 2019, and Safe House ultimately lost in a federal appeals court. But the nonprofit has since reopened the case and is in settlement talks with the Department of Justice under President Biden. We are optimistic that there will ultimately be a resolution that allows us and others uh, to move forward and, and to provide this public health initiative. The Biden administration is supposed to respond to the lawsuit later this month, but they've extended the deadline multiple times in the past. In the meantime, other states could act on their own. Rhode Island approved a pilot for supervised consumption sites last year and is working to get communities to agree to host them. California's legislature is debating a bill that would create a similar program. In New York, advocates say the next step is to try to get Governor Kathy Hochul to pass regulations without waiting for the state legislature. Top health officials in her administration support overdose prevention centers, but the governor still won't say where she stands. For NPR News, I'm Caroline Lewis in New York. So you are probably going to continue to hear about the success of supervised injection sites on this show because as states, you just heard Rhode Island, California, I think there's going to be more states that are proposing this, given how serious the overdose crisis is, how effective supervised yeah. injection sites are at preventing overdose deaths. And even though there's still opposition from the government, from a lot of people that are um, in these communities, from Republicans, I think it's important. And if you, you care about this issue, if you are connected to someone that is struggling with addiction or you are connected to someone who died of an overdose, for example. This is a public health issue, and it is very important that you support these initiatives, support supervised injection sites, and we try to get rid of the stigma that exists surrounding supervised injection sites. Yeah, I mean, listen, if you're if you're if you're interested in this issue and you believe it is important and you you believe in data and research and science and what works, then you'd support these sites. They they aren't uh, promoting drug use. They are eliminating hundreds of deaths. This works. Mm-hmm. This is no longer just some wacky experiment. They're, they've proven eff- efficacy here. So mm-hmm. uh, we'd love to know what you feel about this. Even if you disagree, we love the dissent. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. We love you guys. We're going to leave you there. If you've been on the fence, you've, you've thought about supporting the show and you just haven't gotten around to it or it wasn't your thing, but now you're like, ah, oh, this is the episode that did it for me. You can go to patreon.com slash idoubtitpodcast. Pick a tier. There are rewards for each tier. And uh, we even have a tier where we do a, a, a Patreon hangout call, a Zoom call, where you we sit and look blankly at each other for about an hour. We had the one this weekend, and it was a good time. Yeah, the last Saturday of the month, so that will be June 25th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. That is our next one. Absolutely. Anyway, we see you guys later. We love you so much. Until next time, for Brittany Page, I'm Jesse Dollimore, and this has been I Doubt it.